welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we all have to come together and we get to hear from your word. We get to have a fun time with friends. Um, we get to enjoy so many gifts from you, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, even in Genesis 3 now, as we're looking at the narrative of, of Genesis. I pray that you, would, that you would use your word to speak to us and to change and affect our hearts, transform our hearts through the power of your word and through the application of your Holy Spirit with that word. Lord, those who do not know you, I pray that you would save them from their sin tonight. And those who already know you, would you build them up in Jesus and cause them to delight in Jesus and see the loveliness of their Savior. I pray that you would be with us in this time, Lord, and glorify your Son in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, welcome back to Redeemer Students. Tonight we're looking at Genesis 3. Is Genesis 3 anyone's favorite chapter in the Bible? No. Not, not really. I heard a kid say that was his favorite chapter one time. They are like, what's your favorite story in the Bible? He said, the fall. Genesis 3. So we're going to see why that isn't particularly our favorite, but it's important to our understanding of Scripture. That's why it's a part of our foundation series that we're doing, is it's so important to understanding Genesis 3, because it affects every one of you. It affects every single one of you sitting here now. The pain in your life, the sin that you experience in your life, both from you and from other people sitting against you, and someday every one of us is going to die, physically. And so it affects all of us in very deep ways. So this is why it's important to get this right. So let's get this right together tonight. Um, yeah, so chapter 3 of Genesis. Are you all there? Open your Bibles up to it. We want to be reading the Word together. You were studying this with me, and I'm just taking you along to see the beautiful things that God is doing in His Word. This is often referred to, Genesis 3, as the fall. Because man falls from a state of innocence, which God created him in. God created him, man and woman, Adam and Eve, in a state of innocence. And Genesis 3 is called the fall because they fall from that state of innocence. They're... Exiled from God's presence. They're separated from God's presence because of sin. Sin is the primary issue here. We have a couple characters. We have Adam and Eve in this, who you guys have already met through our other sermons. And there's also God acting in this, who you guys studied all of last semester, which is awesome. So keep all these things in your mind as we're studying through this. There's another character that I'll introduce you to in a little bit. But first, first I want to do something. I want to go back to the, be- the very beginning. I want to go back to Genesis 1-1 and just briefly take you along what has happened so far. So if you would, just close your eyes and don't open them until I say it. Close your eyes right now. And I want you to try to envision the things that I'm talking to you about. This is from Genesis chapters 1 through 2. And it's important to understand where we're coming from because the fall is that much greater when you understand how beautiful the creation was, how sweet and intimate the relationship between man and woman and God were, and how amazing the God that we serve now is. So, in the beginning, there was nothing. You imagine absolutely nothing. Just blackness. The only thing which existed was God. God in all of his holiness and power and majesty. God is a being who is a spirit. You guys learned about him last semester. God existing in the Trinity. The Trinity is perfect unity of Jesus Christ, God the Son, 
God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Those three united perfectly in the Trinity, in love and unity. And this God, although he's not lonely, he's not bored in, in eternity, this dark space or whatever that we're imagining, this nothing, it's just formless everything. But God decides to create everything that we see around us. And so the way he does that is so powerful. He speaks. So this God, this being, speaks into the nothing, and it starts to take form. Where there was a void, where there was absolutely nothing now, it's coming to form because he creates everything out of nothing except his word. And he still sustains us by his word. And in the world that he created, he separates the sky that you see above you, the blue sky with the clouds in it, from the sea below you. And he draws the mountains up from the waters, and the, the mountains shake the water off their shoulders, and the water comes cascading down into the seas. And everything's beautiful. God creates trees, vegetation on the earth, green plants to grow, to thrive in the world, to, to grow out of the ground, to put their roots down deep, and with, with green leaves. Some trees have white bark, and some have brown bark, and they've got these green leaves that drip dew off. And... Then God also puts these luminaries in the sky. He puts the sun and the moon in the sky in order to light up the day. The sun gives this warm, powerful heat by day, and the moon this soft, pure light by night. And God's created everything good in his creation. And then he decides to populate it with birds in the sky that, that sing to each other in the tree branches and fly through the sky, and fish in the water so that when light refracts off their scales, that it creates beautiful colors. And he puts beasts wild animals all around the earth to roam around. And God cares about all the intricate details here. And the most amazing part, the crown jewel of his creation, is man. You guys learned about man, how he created us, how he created us in his image. God himself created man, you and I, in his image. And it's, he doesn't speak this time. Instead, he fashions man out of the dust of the earth and then he breathes into his nostrils. He actually breathes life into man. We receive our life from God. And we're still sustained. That life is still sustained by God. So now you have this beautiful creation with God and man. And then God brings to the man a woman. Equal in dignity with him. They have different roles which complement each other. And it's this beautiful creation with these people living in it. And these people live with God in the garden. It says in our, what we're reading today that they walked in the cool of the day with God. So imagine that. Imagine a man and a woman walking in the cool of the day with God. Maybe the birds are still singing through the trees. Animals are roaming around. Maybe there's a sunset in this perfect atmosphere. And God's created it all. And then Adam and Eve walk in fellowship, in intimate fellowship with God. And they've spent all their lives and all their days praising and glorifying Him perfectly. And that's Genesis 1 through 2. And you can open your eyes now. So now that you have that picture... Genesis 3 is the fall, where everything falls from that state. Everything that was good begins tarnished. It, sin mars it. And this is why Genesis 3 is important and why I just had to do that whole exercise. And because you don't understand the full weight of the fall into sin until we understand how good things were. And Daniel talked to you guys about, last week, talked to you guys about sin to some degree and Adam's job and these things and how Christ actually does what Adam had at one time been commanded to do, which is obey God so he might fellowship with him. So we're going to look at the narrative, and we're going to look specifically at how Satan tempts us now. Because that's what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. So as we continue on with the narrative, that we've, the story that I've been telling you just now, 
that's in your mind and in your heart now. Now this is the sad part. This is the, this is the saddest chapter in all the Bible. Because from this, this is, like a, this is like a fountain from which this black stream of death and sin and pain comes. And it flows over all of history and over all humanity. It touches every one of you. Sin, pain, and death. Because of this chapter. So it's important to understand. So there was in that beautiful creation one creature that wasn't happy. And that was Satan. It was this angel that God had created. At one time he was an angel that, that was created as beautiful and strong and light and powerful, but in his heart he had pride against God and he turned his heart against God and so God threw him down to the earth. He, he sent him out of his presence, which is what must happen when there's sin in our hearts. But Satan wasn't content with just being thrown out of God's presence and Satan wasn't content with being the only one to suffer, for, suffer in hell, but he wants all of God's creation, as much as he can get to go with him. And that's why he tempts Adam and Eve because he wants to take Adam and Eve with him. And so let's look at this. Genesis 3, 1 through 13 is mostly where we're going to be at tonight. So read it with me if you have your Bibles. Genesis 3 says this. Now the serpent, that would be Satan, that angel that was thrown down because of his sin, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he appears to them in the form of a snake. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, or so she thought, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they realized their sin, and there's shame on them now. They realize their nakedness, and they have shame because of their sin. So they try to cover up with fig leaves. Let's carry on into verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The rest of that, JT's going to get into, the rest of that section that you see with a lot of white space there, JT's going to get into that next week. So we just want to focus on this this week. How does Satan tempt Adam and Eve? And further, I can tell you, I can guarantee you that the same tactics that Satan uses to tempt Adam and Eve is the same tactics that he will use to tempt and to deceive you. There are these age-old tactics and devices that he's been using. Satan is predictable in some ways. Jesus says that he is a liar, that he's a father of li of he is the father of lies, and that he's been lying since the beginning. Since this chapter and even before that, because he's lying to the woman in this. And he's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his purpose. God wants to build up. You see him building up the creation in order to glorify his name, but then you see Satan coming in and trying to destroy it all because of the pride in his heart. And he deceives the woman here. But we do not want to be deceived, junior higher. You do not want to be deceived by sin. And so we're going to look at the three 
devices or tricks that Satan uses in order to deceive even us. It's not just Adam and Eve that he's deceiving. What devices and tricks will Satan use to tempt you? What is temptation? Or what is to tempt? It's to sort of push or to pull into doing something which is sin or to do something which is wrong. It's this inclination of uh, being pushed to do something wrong. That's exactly what Satan does here. He tempts the woman into taking of the fruit. So we're going to talk about temptation. How does Satan do this? Primarily in three ways, easy ways that we see in the text. The first is that he casts doubt on God's word. This is Satan's plan all the time. You see this from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of history. Satan is always trying to cast doubt on God's word. Has God really said? Did you hear him say that here? Did God actually say in the middle of verse 1? It's because the serpent's tongue is far less powerful than God's word. And so his only ploy and his only tactic is to try to make us disbelieve God's word or to doubt God's word. He's trying to sow doubt into our minds and our hearts as to what God has really said. And this, this isn't just like the woman was like really dumb and believed this. We, we take this lie in a lot of times. Has God really said? Think about examples of this in your life. Has God really said or does God really mean it? Simple ones. I remember when I was young, maybe this has happened to you where you're like, Mom and Dad say you can't have candy or a cookie or something, and you're like, okay, and then you like kind of want to go take it, and you know you shouldn't. It's like, has God really said that I can't have this? This is such a minuscule, that's such a small thing. Has God really said you shall not steal? Has God really said you shall not dishonor your parents? Yes. The smallest things matter. Does, does, yeah, does God say I shouldn't steal? Does God say that I shouldn't look at things on my own or talk about crude things with my friends? Does God say that I shouldn't take his name in vain? Seemingly small things. Has God really said? It's this inching away from what God has said, but we must stand fast on God's word. We must believe what God has said and take it as he has said it. If God says these things, whatever God says, he says for his own glory, but he also says for our good, for your good, junior high. God says everything he says for your good. So that you might know him, so that you might live lives upright and holy. And so it's a distrust in God's word that starts to distance Eve from believing what God has said. And this is Satan's first trick, to cause doubt about God's word. In Luke chapter 4, further on in the Bible, when Jesus is tempted, Satan comes to him and he says a bunch of things. But Jesus doesn't give in to his does God really say trick. But he, he quotes scripture back at Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, he says, when the devil tempts him with food, like he's tempting Eve now. And so this is for us then. Those of you who are in Jesus, who are in Christ, who have faith in him, what do we do when Satan tempts us? Respond with scripture. Put scripture in your heart or open your Bible up and respond to him with scripture. Or also, actually, cling to the word, which is Jesus. The word of God is Jesus Christ. And so in moments of temptation, then cling to that. Cling to God's word, which is Christ. So that's the first thing he uses. The second is that he, once he casts doubt about God's word, the next thing he does is he casts doubt about God's own character. Satan does whatever he can to malign God's character. And again, this is because he has such a prideful, arrogant heart. And so then he says to the woman in verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's trying to tell her that God just wants what's best for himself. He doesn't care. He's trying to be selfish and be the only one who knows anything, basically. That's not true. God had put these things there for their good, and God cares about his people. And Satan will use this on us as well. 
God doesn't. Does God really care if I just lie a little bit? little white lie? Does God really care if I slam the door after a conversation with my parents to dishonor them? God cares about all these things. And to believe otherwise is Satan tempting us by maligning God's own character. And so know the character of God. This last semester you all studied God's character. Keep those things in your heart and in your mind when you're tempted. Who is God? Remember who God is. Remember who Christ is. Remember the Holy Spirit which is given to all those who believe. And stand against Satan's temptation to believe wrong things. And the last one is that Satan offers some kind of bait. He offers some kind of bait when he tempts us. We see in this that the woman thought, she thought that the fruit was good for food and it was delightful and pleasing to the eyes. And that it was good to make one wise. The only wisdom that it gave her was a knowledge of her sin, which she had just committed. And it was not good for food. It was delightful to the eyes, but when she bit into it, she bit into death and into sin for herself and for all of us. And so beware of sort of the, the package that temptation comes in. Satan will often use seemingly good things in order to tempt us. Satan appears as an angel of light. So why wouldn't his temptations come as seemingly good things? It's like fishing. How many of you guys like fishing? Okay, when you fish, you, you get a hook, right? And you put the worm on the hook and you throw it in the water hoping the fish will eat it. Because the worm tastes good to the fish, right? Satan does the same thing in order to bait us. He'll take some hook of sin to entangle us and ensnare us in sin. And he'll put something that looks kind of good on it. That we'll want and we'll be attracted to. And he'll throw it in there. And wait for one of us to bite on it and to be caught in sin. So we must avoid that. We must know what that is. He doesn't tempt Eve with like a piece of broccoli or an onion. Right? He tempts her with something that appears good. To taste good and to be good for the body. And to make one wise. So beware of the form that it comes in. And beware um, what you put before yourself and how you act, junior honors. There's another section in Proverbs to give you an even more intense illustration. There's a section in Proverbs that says that we're like, in some ways, it uses the illustration of us being like an animal. And the devil is setting snares. He's setting traps out. You know those traps that like you open up and then an animal steps in and it clamps on their leg? Yeah, something like that. So the devil is setting these traps for us. And then when we step in, then we become ensnared and we're stuck in sin. Beware. Look out for these things. Look out for temptations in your life and put them far from you. Run from sin. Flee from the devil. Because in Proverbs, it's not long before the archer or the hunter comes to his prey and right through the liver. Don't be caught in sin, junior hires. Little brothers and little sisters. I say that because I care for you and I do not want to see any of you caught in sin. So, with all this, we could talk about sin and temptation all day, but what, what do we do? There are only two options for you. You can run towards your sin and you can run from God. Or you can run from your sin and you can run towards God. So let's look at verses 20 and 21. You saw what Adam and Eve did, right? Did you guys see that in the text we read earlier, 8 through 13? When God came to them, when God confronted them, they tried to hide. They tried to sow fig leaves over their, their shame. And then they started blaming one another. This is what Adam and Eve did. This is not to be emulated. This is not what you should do. Rather, when you're confronted with God, when you're confronted with God's word, when you feel a weight and a guilt for sins which you've committed, which perhaps are unconfessed, that you have not confessed to the Lord, this word itself, Genesis 3, is confronting you on your sin right now tonight. Which perhaps you know and no one else knows. 
Or perhaps you know and other people know. Genesis 3 confronts us on our sin. And rather than what Adam and Eve did, run, running from God, trying to cover themselves up on their own basis, and then blaming each other, we should do the opposite. For, instead of blaming each other, let us come before God and confess our sins to God. And confess your sins to one another. If, you, if there is sin which weighs on you, confess it to your leader so that they might show you the grace of Christ and, and lead you to that. Perhaps pray with you. So instead of blaming each other, we confess our sins. Instead of trying to cover ourselves up, they try to sow fig leaves on themselves. Fig leaves will tear right off. They won't do anything. Instead of trying to cover yourselves up with good works, instead of trying to just do better next time, that will not work. That will fall off every single time. But there's a covering that God offers later in these verses. Verse 21. The Lord God, after he had spoken to them, says in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Where would he have gotten garments from? Well, yes, he, thank you. He would have had to have sacrificed an animal. He would have had to have, drawn, he would have, had to have killed an animal and made uh, garments for them out of the animal skins. This is the same thing for us then. When Adam and Eve are before God and their fig leaves are gone, they can't blame each other anymore because God already knows everything, and they can't run anymore because God is everywhere. It is the same for you then. Rather, they are to confess their sins before God and they are to receive the clothes which God gives them, the clothes of righteousness then. Jesus Christ was the lamb slain on your account. His blood was shed so that your sins might be forgiven. And his righteousness will act as a garment to cover up your shame so that you might stand in righteousness before God forever. And so if you've fallen prey to temptation in junior higher, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, and I'm pushing you then to run to God, to confess your sins, and to receive the righteousness of Jesus by faith. If you are in Christ, God has forgiven you, but confess your sins anyways. The Christian life is one of confession, of one, one of repentance forever, so that we might be made more into the image of Jesus. And if you have never been forgiven of your sins, and if you feel a weight because of your sin, of guilt, maybe not, maybe you don't feel it now, maybe you've felt it before, or maybe you are feeling it now. Whatever it is, if you feel a weight for your sin and you have not received Jesus Christ, then I am pushing you and, and asking you, run to Jesus Run to Jesus. Confess your sins to God. Perhaps tell a leader this so that they can help you with, think through this. Confess your sins to God and be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus so that you might stand unashamed before God. This is the Lamb that's offered for you. Behold the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. It won't take away yours also. So flee from the devil. Run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every student that you brought here. Thank you that they are here. Thank you that you've given them ears to hear and also a mouth to respond in confession and praise to Jesus. I pray that they would all do that tonight. I pray that you would be with their groups as they go out, that you would give them good conversations. And I pray that you would convict hearts of sin, temptation. And I pray, Lord, that over everything, that, that these students would flee from the devil, that they would run from temptation, that, that, that they would run into the arms of Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness and the forgiveness of sins in him. The Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen.